This is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation podcast, where we are fighting for lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. I'm Chris Sims. I'm the Alberta director here in Lethbridge. Franco, you are a federal director out in Ottawa, and it was a blast from the past for me when I saw this Auditor General report creating this eruption on Parliament Hill. This time, though, it's not the sponsorship scandal. It's what's being called arrive scam walk us through this how did we get here and why is the governor general's bombshell report such a bombshell yeah the auditor general's report i mean uh look we all knew it was bad yeah it's even worse than what we all thought okay so first cash on the dash what was the cost to taxpayers now remember when it was first launched in april 2020 arrive can was 80 grand now the auditor general says that the costs are likely around 60 million bucks. But hold on a second. That's just the amount of money like being outsourced. The internal costs are like an extra 15 million bucks. So we're looking at potential costs for a Rive can potentially around $75 million. Now, why do I keep saying potentially? Because the Auditor General, the Auditor General folks said that the records were so bad The documents were missing that even the Auditor General's office couldn't actually figure out how much money the government was spending on this app. So let me just recap. Yeah. ArriveCan started out April 2020 for about 80K. Then the Auditor General says it's about 60 million. But if you include the internal government costs, it could be about 75 million. But even then, we don't know because the records are so bad. This is exactly the role of the Auditor General is to be a watchdog for the receipts and the bookkeeping on behalf of Canadians. So for folks who don't know, the Auditor General is a an independent arm's length, basically an officer of parliament. It is their job, no matter who he or she is, to keep the government on the up and up when it comes to things like this. But some of the language that I was reading coming from the Auditor General here was alarming. And every now and then you'll get a report of, oh, you know, they're slipping up on this or that. But to me, this was going into Sheila Frazier territory, where she was reporting back then, way back then on the Cretchen liberal government, eventually became the Paul Martin government, saying, where are the receipts? Where is the money going? This is gigantic. Was that the vibe in Ottawa when this thing dropped? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So like that was a little bit before my time of like really watching politics. So it it was crazy because I never really got to experience that. Like, obviously, I've read about it, but I wasn't really uh, in tune with politics. Right. I was I was quite a bit younger. So when I saw this, I couldn't believe how damning of a report it really was. And just her remarks, even with the national press, when she went when she was being asked because the national press was even like, well, wasn't it covid? You know, didn't the government have to go fast? And she said, no, 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 no. Uh, Just to throw all the rules and procedures out the window, just because there was um, what she said, an emergency, that does not pass the sniff test. Now, let me say two other, I want to go into two other things here that were just so bad. So number one, the Auditor General's report mentions that employees were breaching protocol because they wouldn't even disclose or tell their supervisors when they're being invited by private contractors to go for things like dinners or other types of activities. You probably heard it uh, thrown around the, um, what is it called? The virtual whiskey tasting, Yeah. right? So so that's bad. Um, there was another instant, instance where one of the private contractors 
um, was essentially like writing the requirements, like the request for proposal that they eventually won. Writing it themselves. Is, yeah, it, it was wording around that. Like it sound like this was really, really bad, folks. That is really bad. And for people who are new to politics, because some of us have had lives and they haven't been into this since they were kids like me, um, for people who are new to politics who might be thinking, OK, well, again, like they were saying, it was it was the lockdowns. It was the pandemic. People were moving quickly. This could have been an oopsie. No, 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 no. We have rules and regulations and accountability reports and officers and departments for this sort of stuff. So much like when I worked on Parliament Hill, I remember distinctly, Franco, being told by somebody from the ethics commissioner's office as a warning to everybody, it wasn't just me, don't accidentally take a pen from a journalist or even let them pay for your coffee because we could consider that a gift or influence. Okay, and that was years ago. So there are very clear rules here. And that isn't even getting into something like procurement. And folks, keep in mind what this was for. This wasn't for like a jet that can do vertical takeoff. Okay, this was for an app on a phone that a couple of guys remember over the long weekend over Thanksgiving on a lark. Basically, they reinvented it for like, what was that quarter million bucks? Yeah, they said it should have been like developed for around 250K. Right. Two independent yeah. techies just recreating this thing over Thanksgiving weekend. Right. I don't know, like maybe pay them like a Red Bull and a couple a couple boxes of pizza or something like that. <laughs> right. Now, another reason that the cost spiraled out of control and, and this was crazy is that you essentially have these three government, federal government departments overseeing the arrived can app. Well, not the, the departments had no idea who was really in charge. OK, so. None of these departments, they all thought the other one was doing it. They didn't define project objectives. Uh, there was no real like cost estimate, cost constraints or budgets. But don't worry, folks. They somehow managed to budget in their own bonuses. Wow. Remember, we talked about this yep. on the previous uh, Canadian Taxpayers podcast episode that one of the departments, they had eight executives working on the Arrive Can. And they handed out 340000 bucks in taxpayers' money in bonuses to those executives. So this is bad. Like the, the whole Auditor General report, scathing, the bonuses, bad, bad, bad. The fact that the app was launched for about 80 k it ended up costing somewhere between, I don't know, $60 million to $75 million, But the Ooh. Auditor General can't even say for sure because the records are so bad. Like this is bad. This is really bad. And it's obviously not over. I know the committee is continuing its work. And now I'm hearing, I think I saw opposition leader Pierre Polyev calling for the RCMP to start looking into this. So, folks, stay tuned to this one. That story is not going away. Do you want to have some fun? Do you want to talk about uh, lipstick on a pig, Franco? I, I sure know you do. So let's do it. <laughs> OK, wait, wait. I came prepared. All right. So we need to name this pig here uh -oh. because we need to help Prime Minister Justin Trudeau put some lipstick on this sucker and uh, figure out how to sell the carbon tax better to people. <laughs> what is going on on Parliament Hill with carbon tax and rebranding? Well, yeah, well, you know, Trudeau is plummeting in the polls and maybe the only thing doing worse than Trudeau's poll numbers are his carbon tax poll numbers. So, you know, what does the Trudeau government decide? You know, how are they going to save their political skins? Oh, we'll rebrand re the rebates. Yep, problem solved, right? <laughs> okay. 
So yeah, that's the problem. It's not that yeah. it's, you know, picking our pockets. It's that we don't understand how great the rebates are. <laughs> <laughs> so listen to this, right? Like they decided to change the rebate from climate action incentive payment to Canada carbon rebate. Yeah. Like that'll save their problem. Okay. Um, Here's the thing. Like, here's the actual substance of it, right? I think they think they have a communications problem, mm -hmm. but like, look, like, they certainly aren't the uh, snappiest of communicators, right? But that's not the real problem, right? They have a carbon tax is making people's lives more expensive problem. That's yeah. their problem, right? Their problem isn't that people don't know what they're doing. Their problem is that people do know what they're doing, do know that their tax hikes are making life more expensive and don't support it. Exactly. They're on to them because people generally notice how much money is in their bank account, which bills they have to pick to pay and mm. how much money they can spend on groceries. I mean, that's been the case now for so many families of basic most income levels, unfortunately, now in Canada are really taking a look at the price of things now. And that is it's because of inflation. Yes, but it's also because of the carbon tax. So. Okay, it was really fun. Let me just jump in there. Let me yeah. just jump in there, right? Because this just kind of gives me the whole impression, like their whole thought of like, you know what? People just don't understand the re the rebates. It just kind of like seems to me like they're essentially saying, ah, uh, the rubes just don't understand it. The That's rubes right. just don't understand our infinite wisdom. The rubes just aren't thankful and don't understand how good how good we are for them. Well, yeah. is that the case? Or maybe it's the people in the Ottawa bubble who get a taxpayer-funded mansion, who get a pay raise every single year, who have a platinum pension, who get to crisscross around the country, around the globe on our dime. Maybe they just don't understand just how painful their carbon tax is. I think it's that one. Because I That's think the people do understand how right. they're getting absolutely hammered by the because carbon tax. Because the people who are doing the hammering are shielded from the effects of their stupid decisions. This is it. This is the problem. They've been in this long. They put through the carbon tax right away. They keep on cranking it up every year. And if it's no skin off their nose, how are they ever going to notice? And it, this is what leads to comments like the finance minister, Christia Freeland. I think that was back in summer when she was lecturing rural Prince Edward Islanders of like, oh, well, I don't take a car you know, take transit. Meanwhile, she's like getting chauffeured around Toronto. Meanwhile, there's no rapid train, you know, in Cavendish. This is one of those strange let them eat cake disconnect things. And I, I think it's going to backfire. I think that people are not going to be duped by this. They're going to realize that their pockets are still getting picked and that they're still out net hundreds of dollars on average per year with the rebates factored in. But I think I think there is a light at the end of this tunnel, or at least there's a crack in the shield wall here, because now we're seeing things like, hold the phone, the Alberta NDP candidates, okay, Rachel Notley has stepped down as the leader. <laughs> You're going to jump through the screen here at me, Franco. But Rachel Notley has stepped down as leader for the provincial NDP here in Alberta. And now most of the declared candidates are actually saying that they're against the carbon tax. NDP. NDP, yeah. the same yeah. ones who surprised Albertans with a provincial carbon tax. Now, keep in mind, I did not just fall off the turnip truck, okay? We know <laughs> the politicians say a lot of things. They could call this a fee or a levy or hide it some way. But the very fact that they are saying out loud with their face on camera, sometimes while standing in front of an oil derrick, 
saying we need to scrap the carbon tax is a huge move down the field. I do yeah. think that people are getting the message here. And look, like obviously, we we remember that the NDP, uh, when they when they came to power in Alberta, they they didn't even run on a carbon no. tax, right? But then when they oh, then when they were done finishing, what is it, singing for their soup, and they got to power in Alberta, then they hammered Albertans with a carbon tax. I remember, yeah. I was there. Um, but like, look, I think Chris, I think your point is uh, is great. Like, the carbon tax is such a disaster for the Trudeau government that even like Alberta NDP MLA leadership hopefuls are saying, oh, it's time to get rid of the consumer carbon tax. Like even they're saying that, right? I mean, even the NDP federally uh, voted at one point to take the carbon tax off everyone's home heating energy. Uh, you have the NDP premier Manitoba who's suspending gas taxes and who's mm -hmm. calling out the federal government's uh, carbon tax uh, for various reasons. So yeah, I mean, uh, here's another piece of news too, right? Like. Uh, just just this week, we heard Ontario Premier Doug Ford say that he's going to introduce legislation uh, so that if any future provincial politician wants to bring in a carbon tax, they would first have to have a referendum first. Right. So all this kind of shows that the cracks in the carbon tax armor are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And boy, oh boy, do you love to see it. Nor do we ever. Uh, so to be clear, that sounds like a Taxpayer Protection Act that is going to be cropping up in the big province of Ontario. Uh, we have a Taxpayer Protection Act here in Alberta. It's a really good one. It's why we do not have a PST. They also strengthened it last year and said that, hey, if we want to raise personal or business taxes again ever, you're going to have to vote in a referendum on it. So that's awesome. But we also want Premier Daniel Smith to go one step further. Don't get outflanked by Doug Ford. She needs to put a provincial carbon tax shield into her uh, Taxpayer Protection Act here, because like we just said, <laughs> it's happened here before, folks, and it can happen here again. So to actually, I think they're winning the air war when it comes to the carbon tax. I think Trudeau is on the ropes on this. I think that this is going to be the last move that he can try to make. And you made a great point. Can I tell people that you were on the CBC? Yeah, we... give her. Okay. You know what? <laughs> Let's actually play the full panel okay. at the end uh, uh, for people to listen to if they want. You know, why not? Why, why not? not? So you get to find out if Franco believes in soulmates. It's really good. Guys, you have to watch this. So we're putting this on the end of the podcast. But and part of that panel discussion was a really good point of like, okay, now where? Where does Trudeau go now? And you made the great point of, well, he can do the easy stuff. He could, of course, scrap the carbon tax altogether, right? No brainer. Or he could just do the easy stuff, like take it off of all home heating, right? Save people around 300 bucks a winter. Or to your point that we've been talking about earlier today, the farm fuels thing. This is present right now in the House of Commons. Yeah. We're this close to getting it exempted off of other farm fuels. Where are we with that and the carbon tax? Yeah, so... Um, there was already like an agricultural exemption, right? So the carbon yeah. tax wouldn't be applied on gasoline and diesel used on farms. But what that means is that the carbon tax is applied on natural gas and propane that farmers uh, need for what? Drying their grain and heating their barns, right? Yep. So there's been two different types of bills. The most recent bill is Bill C-234. You might have heard it. And what that would essentially do is extend the already exemption that's in place and take the carbon tax off the natural gas and propane that's used for heating barns and drying grain, right? So that was good. And it was passed through the House of Commons, but then it went to the Senate and uh, there was a little bit of, uh, I don't know, Let's call it uh, shenanigans where they delayed it and then they watered down the bill. OK, and they put these amendments. So the Senate 
pass the bill, but with amendments. Okay. And the amendments would be so that there's just carbon tax relief for grain drying, but not for heating your barn, which is a really big deal when it's like really cold in Canada. And the relief would only be in place for three years. Okay. So with the Senate's amendment, because they watered down the bill, that would actually cost Canadian farmers like $910 million. Right. Oh. So now the bill is back to the House of Commons. It's kind of weird. And we're pushing members of parliament to be like, no, 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 pass the original Bill C-234 and provide Canadian farmers with the full range of carbon tax relief. 100%. And, you know, just saying, the Senate's got a lot of nerve, like, altering this piece of legislation. Unelected. Unelected. So these folks are appointed. They're unelected. Uh, for folks who don't know how the system exactly works, they're supposed to be the red chamber. They're actually a holdover from our monarchy. They're the royal chamber. They're part of the ones that give the rubber stamp. They're supposed to generally just be a rubber stamp, especially with something this complicated and this intricate and this mathematical. They should have just let this go through, especially since it had already come through the House of Commons and gone through committee. So, and for folks who don't understand what it's like on farms, I was speaking with our prairie director, Gage. Thank you, Gage, who explained, OK, listen, take a chicken barn, OK, massive poultry barn. You can hear it right now. I can smell it right now. They actually have to keep that at 30 degrees all the time, even if it's like minus 20 something in Saskatchewan or Alberta. Now imagine your competitors across the border in Montana or other northern states not having to pay the carbon tax, that's where you're out big time. And even in the summer, they have to, of course, keep that even temperature for all the animals and livestock in their barns. That's what the Senate took out of this bill exemption. It just boggles the mind. So, folks, if you're up for it, uh, give your member of parliament an email and say, hey, ignore the Senate pass the farm fuels bill as you had it give relief to the farmers now because that will definitely save them a lot of money um speaking of folks who need uh, a wake-up call so did i understand that right because he came out really quick and said oh i was misinterpreted we had the environment minister stefan Guibault basically saying no more money for roads that's it yeah. We're, we've, we've taken a look at the entire budget franco we need to cut somewhere man and the only place we can cut is Rhodes. What is going on? Oh, with him? my. Yeah. I mean, so far where he stands on it today is about as clear as mud. <laughs> you know, give it a second. But look, if the federal government is going to cut funding for roads, then they better cut the gas tax. OK, step number one. And look, I'm as libertarian as the next guy. OK, I know you were yeah. so excited hey. when he made this. Yeah. OK, I'll hear you out. I'll hear you out. OK. Now we're talking the same language, but look, folks, in, in all honesty, right? Yeah. Like, it, like this actually goes down to the more fundamental issue, political issue facing the current government in Ottawa. And that's the fact that they just can't seem to understand what ordinary Canadians go through and how they live their lives, right? Because I think if you ask most Canadians, hey, what's like the one thing that you think government should do? They probably say, uh, fix the pothole so I don't have to go to the mechanic every time I visit my mother-in-law. I think that's what most Canadians would say. And look, um, if it was about saving money, which I wish it was, but it's not, mm. if it was about saving money, I don't know, maybe don't spend, uh, what is it? $8 million building a barn at Rideau Hall. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe start by saving money that way first.
Yeah, or no more tours of sex toy shows in Germany. You know, maybe cut that off the bill first. Yeah. Um, in all seriousness, this does get, and I think we need to pin it on him, this does get down to the disconnectedness of some folks who are in this government, including Minister Guibault. And that is where you have this idea that because you may be, or one may be, a downtown, highly paid urbanite, who often has their transportation paid for them, they have a car and driver, or they don't need to pay for it themselves, so they're insulated from this. Or they can walk to work, they can walk to the grocery store. That's a really nice way to live if you can do it. I lived that way for a little while when I was in Ottawa. But there are millions and millions of Canadians who can't and don't. They have to travel long distances. They have animals to haul. They have to take their kids to school. What? We're a gigantic country. And not everybody has the walkable neighborhood or wants to live that way because they live rurally. And then this this speaks volumes and like their slip is showing when they say things like this. And apparently he was at a, a Montreal convention where he just figured he could say this and get away with it. Now he's trying to stuff the genie back in the bottle because he went back on Parliament Hill and the press... Kudos to them actually scrummed him toughly and said, hey, what are you doing here? And he's now trying to walk this back. So, folks, just keep this stuff in mind that this is how we're helping to hold politicians to account. And this leads me into exactly what I was going to give for my taxpayer pro tip. OK, we started this off by chatting about, you know, communications disasters, how to get your message across. In my experience, both journalistically and on the Hill and whatnot, this is where you start having a disconnect. OK, when you stop being able to pay paying your own bills, right? You get stuck in your own bubble. Uh, I used to call it getting auto washed. Okay, mm. you get disconnected. Um, I f I forget what they call it in DC. I think they call it inside the Beltway or something. But get connected with your people. If you don't want to become out of touch and forget how normal people are living, make sure you get back to your riding all the time, get out amongst your constituents and actually talk to them. Because otherwise you're going to start making these boneheaded decisions and you're going to lose touch with your people. That would be my taxpayer tip for any politician who wants to stay in touch with folks. Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I'm gonna build on it a little bit and it's to whoever's running the comm shop for the prime minister's office or whoever is the head of the, of the comms for, for the government. I mean. Like, if you honestly think that your problem with the carbon tax is bad communications, well, okay, ask yourself a little question. Okay, here's my pro tip. Ask yourself a little question. If Canadians are furious and can't afford your carbon tax at 14 cents a liter of gas, how do you think Canadians are going to feel when you crank up the carbon tax all the way to 37 cents a liter of gas? How much lipstick are you going to need for that pig? Well, the pro <laughs> tip, just ask yourself that question. So, Simmer, what do you think? You think we should uh, just play the full panel, me on CBC, talking about the carbon tax? Yes, and his Can soulmate. We? Give it a listen. Roll the footage. Franco Terrazano in Ottawa, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So, uh, Franco, I want to start with you. You know, uh, you, you work with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, as I said, uh, and you have said, you put out a release today basically saying that the carbon rebrand is just lipstick on a pig. I wonder if you could elaborate on that and, and why you think this rebranding is not going to help. And I meant it. It is just putting lipstick on a pig. I don't think a new name for the carbon tax and its rebate is going to help the government. And I think that's because the government doesn't really have a communications problem. That's not the real issue. Uh, they have a carbon tax is making people's lives more expensive problem. 
right? And it's hitting the necessities. The carbon tax is making it more expensive for people to fuel up their car or to heat their home. And, and let's not forget that only a couple months ago, Canadians watched their prime minister standing with his Atlantic caucus and now announcing relief by taking the carbon tax off of furnace oil for three years while leaving the vast majority of Canadians out in the cold paying the carbon tax this winter. Um, and, and so look, I, I think if the federal government really wants to dig its way out of these political polls, they have to ask themselves a serious question. And that question is, with Canadians furious and struggling to afford a carbon tax that's now 14 cents per litre of gas, well, how are Canadians going to uh, react when the carbon tax is eventually cranked up to 37 cents per litre of gas? You know, how much lipstick are they going to need for that? Okay, uh, so Riley, let me let you weigh in here and get your thoughts on what Franco has to say and whether or not, you know, the, the government needs to be focusing its efforts right now on a rebrand. I mean, I, I feel like that that's part of it. I disagree that they don't have a communications problem. I think that they, they do have a communications problem and they also have a policy problem here. Um, I think the government fundamentally has to rebuild this part of their climate strategy altogether. Um, because it's true that I think the stat says somewhere like 40% of Canadians, when they saw the climate action incentive come into their bank account, they were like, I don't know what this is. I understand it's coming from the government, but 40%. So like, but do I think that's, do so I think them not understanding that, 40% of people not understanding that is the reason why many people have fallen um, out of favor with the carbon tax. No, I don't think that's the sole or, or major reason. They're gonna have to do a lot more work like saying, this is um, how, how much of a, a reduction in emissions that the carbon tax has given us. And this is what that means actionably in terms of our combating the climate crisis. These are other things that we are doing. They're like the, the full scale communication of this um, is policy sector needs to be, I think, totally redone. Okay, Charles, let me get your initial thoughts on this and what your co-panelists had to say. I don't want to be uh, overly sweet on this Valentine's Day, but uh, I, I do tend to agree with both of the guests. Uh, <laughs> I think we do have a communications problem here. Liberals have a communications problem, and they also have a, a policy a problem. It doesn't matter how many people get rebates. Most people believe that when they go to the gas pumps and when they go to the supermarkets and when they pay their rent and when they pay their mortgage, they are paying a huge amount of carbon taxes, uh, climate action taxes. It doesn't matter what you call it. And that's because the conservatives and many of their media allies have been excellent at communicating day after day after day, ax the tax, ax the tax, we may call it superficial. We may call it a lot of things. It's been smart politics. The conservatives have out-communicated the liberals on this. And whether or not the, the, the policy is substantive, it doesn't merely matter. Because if you can't communicate the policy, then you just don't win. And right now, the liberals are losing so large on this carbon issue that even the NDP, that is always pro-carbon tax, it's, it's religion for the NDP to be pro-carbon tax, Every single NDP leadership candidate in Alberta is talking about wiping out the carbon tax, finding a new way to deal with climate action. Hmm. Okay, if Franco, you know, polling suggests that a quarter of Canadians eligible for the rebate believe they didn't receive it. Where do you think this confusion stems from? 
Well, I, I don't know. But one of the big problems uh, policy wise and I guess communications wise is that, you know, the Trudeau government isn't even showing that it's willing to do the little things when it comes to taxation to make life more affordable. You know, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we've been pushing the government to completely scrap the carbon tax. Uh, Trudeau may never be willing to do that, but he could at least not raise the carbon tax again on April 1. Right. Or he could extend the same relief that he gave predominantly to Atlantic Canadians to all Canadians and take the carbon tax off of everyone's home heating bill this winter. Or finally, he could make sure that the carbon tax is removed from the propane and natural gas used on Canadian farms and make sure that the original Bill C-234 becomes law ASAP. So another issue is that Trudeau has the opportunity to at least do the little things to make life more affordable, uh, but his government's not doing that. Riley, do you think, uh, you know, uh, as Franco says here, the, the feds need to pivot on this? And if, if they do pivot, uh, how, how do they do that? Yeah, I mean, if I was advising them, I would be also suggesting a pivot. Um, in terms of the substance of that, I think that uh, what they need to be doing is needing to be saying, we're taking a complete pause on the way we've been doing it this far. Forget the carbon tax as we've presented it to you, and we're going to go and we're gonna come up with something new that addresses the needs that we've come here. And in addition, um, in addition to a carbon tax, we are going to be accountable in a greater way of showing you what this carbon tax is actually doing for you for the environment, because that's the reason why they say, you know, remember the wildfires out west? Do you remember the storms in Atlantic Canada? Making sure that people actually feel uh, there, there's an incentive there. And furthermore, also recognizing that the carbon tax was far more popular when the economy was doing well. Now that we are in what is largely being looked at as an affordability crisis, that there also is going to have to be policy interventions in other ways so that that successful marketing that the Conservatives did to make you feel like the carbon tax is the reason why everything is the main reason why everything mm. is so unaffordable that they feel like they're doing something about that too. Okay, well, turning to our other story for the night, Environment Minister, uh, well, he clarified his remarks that he made earlier today about the federal government uh, stopping investing in new road infrastructure. Take a listen to what he had to say. What, what, what I have said is that the solutions to our transport challenge passed by many different things, including massive investment in public transit, including investment in electrification of transportation. And of course we're funding roads. We have, we have programs to fund roads. What we have said, and, and maybe I should have been more specific in, in the past, is that we, we don't have funds for large projects like the Troisième Lien that the CAC has been trying to do for, for many years. Okay. Charles, we'll start with you on this one. We were talking about communications uh, and communication blunders. Uh, what, what, what did you make of this moment on the Hill today? Well, uh, Stéphane Guibault is a very, very smart guy, and he's uh, terrific at being a climate change activist, but he is absolutely horrible as a retail politician. He is Santa Claus for Pierre Polyev every day. Even if Pierre Polyev didn't have a brain in his body, and even if he didn't have any personality, it's just too easy, quoting Stefan Guibault once or twice every couple of weeks and making it out that Stefan Guibault is the hidden agenda for the Liberals. Because every time Guibault opens up his mouth and starts lecturing Canadians, and now in that cumbersome speech that he did that he's being quoted on, where he's essentially saying that uh, every every Canadian ought to be living in downtown Toronto or downtown Montreal. That's how it comes across. We should do more walking and less driving. As a matter of fact, we shouldn't even put money into major highway projects. It doesn't matter how much he wants to walk it back. 
There aren't enough Zambonis in Canada to clean up after Stefan Gigo. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let me, I'm going to go to you in a second, uh, Franco, but I want to first get uh, Riley's reaction here because I see you shaking your head uh, when it comes to Stephen Gilbo's uh, comments here. Uh, do you think that uh, him saying that he should have been more specific, uh, you know, cleans up this uh, controversy? No, it definitely doesn't. I agree with Charles that the, the walk back is going to be insufficient for this one. I don't know why if what he's trying to say is what I'm assuming he's trying to say, right, is that there's going to be no more construction of new major highways. And if that's what he's trying to say, essentially, why not have having said that in the first place? Because it did. It gave uh, Pierre Polyev the perfect soundbite to say things which are, you know, untrue, but uh, relatedly enough on the headline um, to be like, he said that we're going to get rid of roads was a tweet that he put out, which is, you know, obviously not what he's doing, but he communicated it so poorly that it, it created the perfect avenue for those types of um, comments from the opposition to come out. So there's that. But also, once again, I think like tying back to, you know, maybe our previous point that I think it's a complete failure on the climate and environment policy, um, you know, sector altogether of the government um, to not communicate, again, how this ties in, how they recognize um, the real day to day impacts and how they're balancing that with their climate objectives. There's just so much obscurity um, that they really need to start picking up, especially as we head towards um, election era season, I guess. Yeah, election season. Okay, Franco, I'm gonna give you the last word to you on this topic. Well, first of all, you know, if the government's going to be cutting spending for roads, they better be cutting gas taxes. But, you know, to a more kind of political point, it, it makes the government seem like it just doesn't really understand uh, the day to day challenges and lies for ordinary Canadians. You know, I think if you ask most Canadians what they actually want the government to be spending money on, I think many Canadians would say, yeah, fix the pothole so I don't have to take the car to the mechanic every time I go visit the in-laws. And, you know, like I'm all for finding savings, but I think hey, maybe we stop spending $8 million building a barn at Rideau Hall before you go after the roads, or you know, maybe don't turn an $80,000 app into a $60 million boondoggle, or you know, hat tip to the CBC, uh, let's figure out a way to be able to host a conference in Canada without spending $600,000 on luxury hotel rooms that we didn't even use. All right, we're gonna hit pause on that uh, part of the conversation right now. We are talking about now an exclusive interview with the BBC, US Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said that AI can be used to supercharge election disinformation and incite violence. So Charles, I want to start with you on this one. Uh, are you concerned about this? And do you think that AI should have any place kind of in elections or that, that governments really should be super focused on making sure that there are sufficient guardrails around this? Well, I wish government had the uh, capacity, uh, the political will and the technological capacity, because this is going to get really, really dangerous. It's dangerous enough right now that social media is absolutely polluted, absolutely contaminated with disinformation and misinformation. People believe all kinds of nonsense in this country and countries all over the world because of robots, algorithms. I don't want to get into all the technical names, but the point is so much of what's on social media right now isn't even close to true, and some of it is bordering on evil. With artificial intelligence, all of this becomes exponentially uh, more dangerous as we put words literally into people's mouths and we'll have various leaders around the world looking like they're saying the kinds of things that will most definitely incent people to hate, to loathe each other, uh, to loathe countries, to want to make war on countries. It'll be very easy to do. I don't know how easy it'll be for any government 
uh, to make a change there. But everyone right now who is cynical about the information they get, they'll get exponentially more cynical as artificial intelligence seeps into the drinking water with each day. Franco, you know, obviously the United States watching this closely. How much of a concern do you think uh, Canadian government officials should uh, should have when it comes to AI in our elections here in this country? Well, you know, just full disclosure, I really don't know the first thing about the workings of AI. That's way above my pay grade. (laughs) And also, too, like I've never been a part of partisan campaigns. Right. So it's tough for me to get into the weeds on this. But one concern I I do have is, is, yes, there may be some legitimate concerns for a government around this type of stuff. But I but I also worry that a government may use a sledgehammer that may reduce legitimate uh, freedom of expression around election time. And, and, you know, I'll just plant a seed, you know, regardless of who you support, whether that's the liberals, the conservatives, the NDP, the Bloc, the Green or whatever party, whatever party you do support. Just remember that one of the beauties of a democracy is that uh, parties in power come and go. And just remember that even if you may support a party in power with legislation, legislating power over that today, you may not want a different party to have that type of power tomorrow. Okay, so uh, Riley, uh, you know, picking up on that, do you think that there are shades of gray here? Because, you know, when we hear about AI often when it comes to elections, it is very much doom and gloom. But are there shades of gray here, as Franco says? And should we be careful about uh, too much, uh, too many restrictions when it comes to the use of AI? I mean, I I think first, like I I would be surprised if the government, at least in Canada, was had the capacity, the the political capacity to develop a sledgehammer to take on AI in such a constraining way. We historically uh, have not been able to pass many policies, much legislation that constrains, um, you know, private enterprise on the internet related to the internet in any way. We all don't have um, news on our Facebook feeds right now, you know, to attest to this. Um, and so I feel like I. I'm not so worried necessarily of um, encroachments on freedom of speech so much as I am of the sort of like negative uh, consequences. Because what we're talking about here of the reason that we're requiring this type of intervention um, is not for it's it's practical uses like a we uh, in the article about this I should say mm. um, folks were saying that you know they use it to to mine through um, some data to figure out how what all the polls are saying and they get it to you really fast that's a useful thing we're talking about deep fakes we're talking about impersonation we're talking about um, you know putting people's uh, putting words as Charles was saying into people's mouths and on their faces literally um, and so I think that the need for intervention is there but I'm just not confident that we can actually do it so if it's not on on government then Charles does it need to be the responsibility need to be on social media companies to self uh, regulate here and, and and will they do that without government intervention well you know all, all social media companies have to do not to disparage Franco all social media companies have to do is say, oh no 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 we believe in freedom of expression we believe that the people should make up their own minds that is absolute nonsense but it works for them because all that matters to them is click, 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 click. And with AI, the clicks will be going up. They'll be going up exponentially. And we can talk about how we don't really want any particular party to have any power over other party. But the point is, we'll wait and see. But the deep fakes that have been just discussed by this illustrious panel are absolutely serious. Because if we have prime ministers, opposition leaders, and other people saying things that they didn't say uh-huh. The other party will say, no, that, that that is them. That is them saying it. They're Stephen Gabot every day. They're the highway to hell every day. And 
political parties that can't get their heads around this or decide not to in the name of freedom of speech are going to regret that day. All right. Uh, listen, we got to turn now. I guess 10 minutes is left on your meeting there, Charles. But we, we have uh, to talk now about Valentine's Day uh, because it is, of course, Valentine's Day. And what better way to mark the occasion by talking about soulmates? Well, a new report co-authored by a University of Alberta professor says people should stop looking for their soulmate if they want a lasting, meaningful relationship. So, Riley, you believe in soulmates or, or, or not? And what do you think of this study? Is this a downer on Valentine's Day? Did I pick a downer of a topic? No, I, I, I think it's, I was startled actually to see when I was like reading up on this that 60% of folks in the US at least said that they still believe in soulmates. Like, I don't know whether to find that, you know, inspiring or in light of what the researchers are saying concerning. But um, I think that uh, there's the main reason I don't like the idea of a soulmate. So I guess the answer is no, I don't believe in it. The reason I don't like it is beca not because I think you'll never find somebody that lives up to it. My fear is that you find somebody that you think is your soulmate and then you idealize either who that person is or your relationship together. And m my lessons in life have told me that um, idealizing somebody is just as much a form of dehumanization as, you know, objectifying or putting someone down or any of those things. You you ruin the capacity for people to be messy and make mistakes and to grow together through actual hardship and all of those lovely ah. things that I think are real love. Okay, Franco, let me ask you, do you think the concept of a soulmate puts unrealistic expectations on relationships? Well, you know, I was just thinking to myself, it's Valentine's Day, and instead of being on a dinner date with my beautiful girlfriend, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck talking about uh, politics with, uh, with with you fine folks. And, you know, I'm having a great time. But as I say it out loud, it kind of occurs to me that maybe I'm not the best person in the world to be giving dating advice. <laughs> well, but, but do you think that, the, the, you know, the soulmate idea is putting unrealistic pressure on folks? You think that do you, or do you think a soulmate's possible? Well, I, I sure hope my girlfriend who's waiting for me for our dinner plans isn't uh, feeling too let down. But look, folks, I, I'm not too sure. I just hope everyone does enjoy tonight. And uh, I'm super grateful to be here uh, discussing these issues with everyone. <laughs> Very diplomatic answer there, Frank. OK, Charles, let me get your, your thoughts on this. George Strait, uh, one of the uh, top country singers of all time. One reason is because he's got great lyrics, the best lyric writer, best lyricist write for him. And uh, years ago, he had a monster of a hit with I Saw God Today. I'm not going to repeat the entire lyric, even though I was a country DJ. I used to play this all the time. And here's the deal. I Saw God Today is a belief system. Why does he say he saw God? Because he was in the maternity ward looking at, into the glass at the nursery. And there was his little girl with her little pink socks. And she had his wife's nose and she had his mouth. And he believed in that moment that he saw God. Am I going to tell him or is some academic going to tell him that God doesn't exist? As long as you believe in something, whether it's God or a soulmate, as long as you believe in something in this country where you're not imposing it on anyone else, you're not threatening to kill anybody else, you're not using it as a tool for violence, you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's what's wonderful about this country. See That's that? why I call Canada my promised land, even though many professors will say it's not a promised land. It is to me. I love this country. I love Canada. And most important tonight on this Valentine's Day, a Valentine to you, Travis. I love Canada tonight. <laughs> Charles, you didn't answer the question. Do you believe in soulmates? That's great. But do you, do you believe in soulmates? 
Yeah, I do. There you I go. I do. Sue me. I do. <laughs> Listen, uh, happy Valentine's Day to all of you, Franco. We're going to let you go now uh, and get to your dinner. Hopefully, you can make it. It's not too late. Uh, but that is our intersection panel for tonight. Riley Yesno, Indigenous rights advocate and writer. Charles Adler, a writer and podcaster, joining us from Winnipeg this evening. And Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian... Uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who is in Ottawa and has got a date to go out on.